It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the brutal murder of three children. If you've been interested in true crime long enough, there are certain cases you hear about over and over. Cases that have, for whatever reason caught the attention of the public in a way that others simply do not. Cases like John Bonet Ramsey, Casey Anthony, and the case we will be discussing today, the West Memphis Three. We are talking about this case today, not just because of recent news developments, but because, as we will see, we feel it offers a good example of how easily media narratives can form around a case, and how those narratives can twist and distort the actual facts. We are going to give you the very basic details about this as concisely as possible. This case involves three eight-year-old boys, Steve Branch, 
Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. The children went missing in West Memphis, Arkansas on May 5, 1993. They were discovered dead in a water-filled ditch the next day, nude and hogtied with their own shoelaces. Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin were charged with the murders of the children. Some people claimed that the only reason why they were blamed for the deaths of the little boys was because they dressed different from the norm. The juries obviously disagreed, because the three were convicted. Miss Kelly and Baldwin received lengthy prison terms. Eccles was sentenced to death. In 2011, Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin made a deal with prosecutors. They would be released from prison in return for making so-called Alfred pleas. That means, basically, that all three men pled guilty to the murder charges because they admitted the state had good evidence against them. But they still maintain their innocence. Their supporters over the years have included celebrities like the Dixie Chicks, Henry Rollins, and Johnny Depp. Recently, the case has been in the news yet again. Eccles, a free man for over 10 years, filed a court motion to have evidence in the case tested for DNA. That motion was denied. Some say that was because the plain language of the statute simply does not allow for the evidence to be retested in a case like this. Others see the denial as part of an ongoing conspiracy to persecute Eccles, Miskelly, and Baldwin while protecting the alleged theoretical actual murderers of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. To sort it all out, we decided to turn to Danny Cash. Danny is a skilled researcher who not only hosts her own podcast, 10601 Sabo, but is also one of the admins of the West Memphis 3 Facebook group. And, as you will soon see, she has an encyclopedic knowledge of this very complicated case. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the murder sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We're the murder sheet, and this is the West Memphis Three, murder, lies, and nonsense. Danny believes that the story of the recent court motion for testing begins with Bob Ruff, who has covered this case extensively both on his podcast 
Truth and Justice, and in a special on the Oxygen Television channel. And just a quick note, during the course of this conversation, you'll hear Danny offer some critical views of Ruff's work. We gave Ruff a heads up about this and offered him a chance to respond. He respectfully declined. The the court hearing itself has really been a saga since Bob Ruff went to um, Eccles, Baldwin and Miss Kelly to a lesser extent um, and asked them to agree to this additional DNA testing. And if you watched his, um, his, his oxygen special, he speaks to Eccles and Eccles says, yeah, go for it. Baldwin says the same. And he sort of tracks down Miss Kelly event, kind of through various houses and finally finds him at this house. He's not, they won't open the door and let him in. Miss Kelly's inside, he's got a tooth, toothache and Bob Ruff sort of calls through, hey, what do you think about DNA testing? And Miss Kelly goes, or someone who says he's Miss Kelly says, oh yeah, I'm fine with it. And that's Miss Kelly's consent to this DNA testing. So at this point, Bob Ruff starts asking Scott Ellington, he of the Alford plea, to send off all this evidence to a particular lab and test it. The problem is, Bob Ruff has no right to ask for anything to be done in this case. He hasn't, he's got no standing in the case. He's not an attorney for the three. He's not one of the three themselves. He's not even a family member of the victims. And it's already been established in this case in, in about 2011, uh, the WMPD rejected Pam Hobbs, Pam Hicks, sorry's um, request to view the, view the evidence. I think that was wrong. I think that was quite harsh of them. Um, but they established that even victims' families don't have standing. So why does Bob Ruff? Well, he doesn't. And so that's why he didn't really get anywhere. Bob then claims that he and Ellington had this kind of back and forth where Ellington agreed that he was actually going to send it. Um, still waiting to see any of those emails actually published. Um and this goes on for, for quite a while. And eventually, Scott Ellington gets a new position and he's replaced as DA by uh, Keith Cressman. And Keith Cressman, they write to, the attorneys write to Cressman and say, can we do this DNA testing? Cressman says, it's not up to me. I'm not the custodian of the evidence. You'll have to file a motion with the court. That is in 2020, sometime during 2020. And he says, in preparation for this, I've asked the WMPD to catalogue what evidence remains. Then there are some kind of generic statements in the media about in cases like this, evidence is often destroyed um, or lost. And it's worth mentioning that in 2004, Eccles and Baldwin, I don't think Miss Kelly did, but Eccles and Baldwin both signed a waiver saying if evidence was destroyed during their DNA retesting, they signed the waiver accepting that could happen. So... It's potentially that the testing that's already been done could mean that they're not going to get any part, be part of the reason they might not get usable results at this point. Then there's a more concrete statement made by, I think, the mayor of West Memphis, who says that there was a fire and some evidence was destroyed. And suddenly the West Memphis 3 PR machine hits overdrive and Eccles is doing, you know, every interview that he can do. You know, they won't let me prove my innocence, blah, blah, blah. Well, you were told to file a motion however long ago. You didn't do it, and now your probation's going to be running out soon. So he lets this—he let—he runs down the clock for a long time, and eventually, and I would argue that what what's happened is officials who didn't really know what they were talking about um, made some possibly loosely worded comments because actually, based on an incident that did have some truth to it, there was a fire in a storage container that held some evidence. I think only one or two pieces even connected to this case. But 
once it was established what happened, the, the cataloging of the evidence finishes, which Cressman told them was being done. He told them the evidence is being catalogued. And then in December 2021, West Memphis Police Department contact Eccles attorneys and say, we finished cataloging the evidence, come in and have a look, which they didn't need to do. They did that kind of out of courtesy, really, and probably to shut them up a bit. So they come in, they look at this evidence, they see it's all there. And then at this point, what is stopping them doing a motion? A motion, not, not asking for a joint motion, not asking Cressman really, really nicely if he'll test the DNA, if he'll test the evidence. They're told to file a motion and they don't do it. They ask for another joint motion. Cressman says no again. Eventually, over a year after being told you need to file a motion to have the evidence tested, they finally file a motion. There are some problems. And most notably for me was they filed the motion in Crittenden County, which is where the 1994 convictions were entered. Uh, the 2011 Alpha pleas were entered in Craighead County. It's not the same county, it's a fatal error. Um, and so after all that time to get it right, with Cressman actually offering them support in how they need to word the motion, this is what you should be, you know, the court will not accept this, you need to improve this. They get the wrong county. So sorry, the state went back to Eccles' motion and raised a number of concerns Partially the issue of it being in the wrong county, partially the issue that the judge ruled on that you can't, you're not entitled to habeas relief if you're not in custody. Um, the fact that the motion was considered presumptively untimely. So in Arkansas, in the three years, 36 months after a um, conviction, your a request for further DNA testing is considered automatically to be timely. After that, it's considered untimely unless there are unless there are some exceptions. So those are, for example, if the defendant's incompetent. Well, 1993, Eccles Council declined to seek a mental health evaluation. He's assumed to be competent. Um, I'd say in this case, it's really the lawyer who's incompetent rather than Eccles himself. Um, but the, the other, another exception is new technology, and that would be MVAC. The MVAC method Danny refers to is the system Eccles wanted to use for the proposed new DNA testing. It is basically a different method of collecting the DNA from the surface of an object, a process that is said to allow more DNA to be collected than before. We will quote from the MVAC.com website. It is a sterile wet vacuum. Collection solution is sprayed onto the surface while simultaneously being vacuumed off of the surface. It creates a mini hurricane that loosens the DNA material, which is transferred to the collection bottle and later concentrated onto a filter. Due to the mechanism of the law under which Eccles was asking for the test, it was crucial that MVAC be considered a new technology, or at least something that Eccles and his team could not have been expected to be aware of back when they filed their Alfred plea in 2011. Is MVAC new tech? Yes and no. Um, so it's first used kind of uh, to public knowledge in the murder of uh, Jutta von Schwedler in 2012. She was killed in 2011. MVAC was used in 2012. So that's well within that um, three years following the conviction because an alpha guilty plea is a conviction. So, it, but also there was an interview with uh, the president of MVAC on Bob Ruff's show. And in that show, he described MVAC being used in forensic casework in Utah by Sorensen Labs in 2010. 
it's not just within the three years, it's before the 2011 testing was done. So how, could they realistically have heard of MVAC? No, not really. It would be a bit harsh to rule against them on that. But the law, is it new if it's been, been being used for 12 years? It would, there would be a debate even around that point. It's not just a gimme that it's considered new, um, new technology. And there's another issue, and this one is a massive one for me. And this kind of, it gets to kind of the heart of some due process questions, really. Bob Ruff and Eccles have claimed to have Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly on board with the testing. Um, neither of them can co-sign the motion. We know that Miss Kelly's, the extent of Miss Kelly's agreement was shouting through a door. The plot thickens. The night before the hearing, Jason Baldwin has a late night Twitter moment, which over the years has not been that uncommon for Jason Baldwin. And he tweeted um, the night before, quote, neither Damien nor his attorneys have discussed this hearing with me or my attorneys. My attorneys, and I wish they would have, that way they could have assuaged my concerns about this type of testing and whether or not it is the best technology for moving the case forward. Regardless, I'm a team player and hopeful for the best outcome. Even though I was not invited, I will be there. So trouble in paradise. Eccles and Baldwin are not really friends anymore. But the state argued in their response that Miss Kelly and Baldwin may have the right to future DNA testing at some point. And the MVAC testing process, while it does pull massively more DNA in many cases than, than swabbing methods, um, is also very destructive. It soaks the evidence in kind of water and then sucks out you know, everything, including kind of DNA. And Arkansas has a statute saying no, that they don't accept overly destructive methods of DNA testing anyway. But the point the state was making really was if Eccles and if I'm sorry, if Baldwin and Miss Kelly want to test the evidence in future and it's been and these ligatures have been destroyed by Eccles's 2002 on a wing and a prayer, you know, testing attempt, that's denying them their right to test the evidence at a subsequent point. But also in another case where let's say not all not all of them were guilty. Some of the defendants were guilty, some of them weren't. And one of the defendants who was who was not guilty wanted to test evidence and apply for that. I think it's a due process issue in that when it's not law enforcement trying to retest the evidence, it's your co-defendant testing evidence that could potentially implicate you. That's why trials are often severed if there's a chance that defendants will try to implicate each other. Jason Baldwin's attorney was desperate for their trials to be severed back in 93. So I think there's a due process question. Does one defendant of three have the right to say, let's go ahead with this testing, regardless of what the other two think? If this was still an active, if this was still active in post-conviction relief, they could be at different stages of appeal um, and DNA testing results might not be usable in one, in one, at one stage of appeal, for example, because you're not allowed to present new evidence yet. You're only allowed to raise trial, raise own process issues. So, yeah, I think that's, that bothered me a lot. The misrepresentation of it primarily, the, the idea that Miss Kelly, who I think, has basically hidden for the last 10, uh, well, 11 years since being released. The idea that he can, consented is not true. Baldwin openly says he wasn't consulted. I think, yeah, I think all three defendants should have to be on board for that further testing to be done. And another final thing is the two um, resolutions that the state can offer if a writ of habeas corpus is granted is resentencing or a new trial. Neither of those things can happen to Eccles. He can't be resentenced. That's what happened. He can't have a new trial because he's already pleaded guilty. 
state can't offer relief here. So basically, as Danny noted, Eccles's motion for DNA testing failed not because of a grand conspiracy to suppress evidence, but rather because one, it was filed in the wrong county, two, the plain language of the law Eccles filed under stated that such tests would only be available when the person in Eccles's position was in custody. Eccles, of course, is a free man. Also three, the motion did not have the explicit support of Baldwin and Miss Kelly, and since the testing might damage the evidence, it was important to protect their interests and safeguard the evidence. But the judge's decision was not the end of the story. What's happened since the ruling, and this is very interesting, someone, a post-conviction attorney in a different state, read um, the statute, the Arkansas statute, and it sets out cases in which someone can apply for further testing under a writ of habeas corpus, sorry. And one of those, if you read it, if you take it at face value, it could be read as saying one of the three situations in which you can have further DNA testing or writ of habeas corpus is if you're pleading actual, if you're claiming actual innocence, regardless of whether you're in custody or not. That's not how the state has upheld it. The state referred to um, previous case law that says that actually, no, you have to be in custody. That's not the case in all states. It is the case in Arkansas. Just as an aside, by the way, I don't really agree with that law. I don't think it's fair. I think the state should actually be able to offer relief in the form of an exoneration in this kind of situation. But the judge's job is to interpret the law. She's interpreted it correctly. And there's previous case law that says things just very clearly. The state cannot grant habeas relief unless the defendant's in custody. But now Bob Roth and others are saying that the judge has interpreted the law wrong. Because obviously a podcaster and, you know, listeners know the law better than this judge. And it's just, I think it's really, I think it's just really silly, to be honest. And what will happen is that it will be, they'll try and appeal it. It'll be denied. I think at that point they'll accept they have to go and try and change the law. And if they do, good luck to them. Not good luck to Eccles, but good luck to changing the law. Because genuinely wrongfully convicted people who have been released should have the chance to try and prove their innocence. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. 
Go to row.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It seems like there's been a lot of really credulous reporting on this situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as somebody who's researched West Memphis 3 for, for so long, can you mm-hmm. talk a bit about, like, how how you've seen those narratives sort of play out and why it might be frustrating for people who are really in-depth on the case? Yeah, Um, So there are several kind of misconceptions that get repeated over and over again, um, often by journalists. And one of the most common ones that I've seen recently is the hair of a stepfather was found tied into the ligature on Michael Moore. It is important to note here the defenders of Eccles, Baldwin and Miskelly have proposed that the murders of Steve Branch, Michael Moore and Christopher Byers were committed by someone else. One of the so-called suspects they have suggested over the years has been Terry Hobbs, who was the stepfather of victim Steve Branch. The the so-called Hobbs hair. And what they don't mention is that the defense's own experts said it matches to about 1.5% of the population. So there's several people that it could be who live in West Memphis, not just Terry Hobbs. And then there's the fact that it's obviously explainable as transfer. Michael Moore and um, Michael Moore, Stevie uh, Branch and Christopher Byers were in and out of each other's houses even if it is Terry Hobbs' hair, it's so explainable. The reason people do things like claim that the so-called Hobbs hair implicates another person in the murders is that they are trying to send a larger message about the case. Namely, that Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly have been proven innocent. They repeat that the three have been exonerated. This is something, oh, they exonerated West Memphis 3. No, they weren't. They pleaded guilty. It's not exoneration. We referred to this earlier, but it can be a bit confusing, so let's return to it. Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly did in fact plead guilty to the murders as part of a deal to be released from prison after serving 18 years. Technically, they did this via something called an Alford plea. But what exactly does that mean? So the Alford plea is a very rare and unusual kind of plea whereby a defendant is allowed to to plead guilty but maintain their innocence. So they say they plead guilty and they acknowledge specifically that the state has enough evidence to convict them, Um, or more accurately, that a reasonable jury presented with the state's evidence could convict them. That is what um, Eccles, Baldwin and Miss Kelly accepted. The reason it came about, as far as I'm aware, this is unique in the US um, in this kind of, in history really, of an Alfred plea being agreed before a new trial had been actually set. Um, Eccles, Baldwin and Miss Kelly 
have been granted an evidentiary hearing in December 2011. In August 2011, um, they get the latest set of results from Bode Laboratories, who are doing the uh, DNA testing on behalf of Eccles. And a few days later, one of Eccles' lawyers, uh, Patrick Benker, goes for lunch with someone from the DA's office, Dustin McDaniel, who they were old, old law school pals. They now work together in the same practice. Um, and Benker proposes a plea deal. And initially, the prosecution wanted a straight-up guilty plea, no Alford. The defence said no. Um, and they actually explain this in West of Memphis and Paradise Lost 3 a bit. They say that they had two real um, conditions. One, they can maintain their innocence. And two, they walk out of prison today. And that's what they got. So they went back and suggested, and sorry, the next thing the prosecution suggested was a, a no contest plea. Uh, the defence countered that with the Alford plea and out they went. But the new trials hadn't been granted. The evidentiary hearing in December was to look at the new DNA evidence and the allegations of juror misconduct, um, a couple of other things as well. And the judge would have decided if they got a new trial or not. And if Scott Ellington, the DA, had had a bit more about him, he would have said, talk to me after the evidentiary hearing. Because that, if they get the new trial, then that's when it makes sense to talk about the Alford plea. The state offered deals to Adnan Syed, who is also guilty, um, and they've offered, you know, people say they wouldn't offer these deals um, if there was any chance these people are guilty. Well, actually, they're, ra they're rational people. They don't want to lose a trial when so and have to pay out a load of compensation. I think it was a cowardly, cowardly way out in this case, but it doesn't prove innocence any more than them pleading guilty in and of itself proves guilt. But perhaps it is worth going back to the very beginning and considering why Eccles, Baldwin and Miss Kelly even became suspects in the first place. Part of the being so credulous with West Memphis in particular, it's like, the, the narrative that, oh, they were outsiders, they were, you know, they were into heavy metal and the, you know, the, the Christians and the, you know, they didn't yeah, there, understand there's a whole, them. There's a whole narrative, the whole reason yeah. they were considered suspects was because they dressed a little bit differently. And I was wondering, could you talk about that? And could you tell us what these people were like before the crimes? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is, I would say the big, this is the big daddy of the, of the West Memphis Three misconceptions. And I suppose just to speak kind of very briefly from a personal perspective, as you can see, I don't know how well, it's sound, isn't it? As you can see, I dress somewhat differently. I stand out in a lot of ways. And a lot of people who also stand out in different ways identify with Damien Eccles, or more precisely, the portrayal of Damien Eccles in the Paradise Lost film, which is not the real Damien Eccles. He was, yes, he was a strange outsider. He did listen to rock music and he did like to piss off, piss off people in authority and make outrageous statements. He also had a lifelong history of serious psychological problems. Now, there's a kind of obviously an ableist myth that anyone with mental health problems is more likely to go out and commit murder. That's not, that's not the case. But this, Eccles's um, psychiatric history is relevant because his parents, his mother, his stepfather and his biological father were all afraid of him and they were all afraid that he would be violent towards his younger siblings. So it's materially relevant to an act of violence against young children. Eccles was also accused of stalking two girls locally shortly before the murders and 
on another occasion spying from behind a bush at two other girls. And these girls of around nine and 12 in one instance and between 14 and 16 in the other, I think. Um, and these are these allegations weren't used at trial. And it may be the case that the state didn't feel they were the state didn't feel they were credible. Um, but these things were alleged. And it's not the case that Damien Eccles was a perfectly perfectly stable guy, perfectly happy, listened to Metallica one day and the state arrested him for murder. And again, the satanic panic really is the other kind of aspect of this. I would argue that was coming, it hadn't finished, but it was coming to an end at that point. There had been a lot of um, wrongful convictions in the 80s over the satanic ritual abuse, um, moral panic. There were quite a few overturned convictions in kind of late 80s, early 90s. But also just the idea that people were scared of devils. I mean, the local school sports team in West Memphis is called the West Memphis Blue Devils. You can actually see it at one of the points in the film, they're kind of, you know, home of the Blue Devils. But also, and I realised this, someone pointed this out to me recently, across the water in Memphis, early 90s, there was a rap collective, the 3-6 Mafia, 666 Mafia. They were very popular. They weren't getting chased out of, of, um, out of the area. And Eccles' mental health was far more of a concern. In terms of Jesse Miss Kelly as well, he has a track record of, again, serious psychological disturbances. He was seeing psychologists when he was around eight years old. This is not to say that when poor when poor Jesse was eight, you could have predicted what was going to happen, but he had a very difficult kind of a very difficult life. And also, again, materially relevant in that there are at least two occasions where he was violent to, to younger children, including hitting a girl, a 13-year-old girl, because she was telling people that she didn't sleep with him um, after he was going around saying that she did. And another occasion when he either hit someone, hit a girl with a brick or threw a brick at her. So again, Miss Kelly, similar background in a lot of ways. Baldwin is the one we know a lot less about. But certainly Eccles and Miss Kelly had a lot in their backgrounds to be concerned about. Yeah, one of the things that's often a warning sign for uh, violent offenders is abuse of animals. And yes. isn't there something in Eccles' background that's directly related to that? Yes, there is. So it's actually, there's all three All three of the convicted have a history of animal abuse, but Eccles is the one it's most kind of associated with. So there were lots of reports and, and witness statements of local teenagers and local witnesses saying to the police that they've been involved in these cult meetings at which they would kill dogs and kind of eat their flesh. I suspect that that was exaggerated, but I also think that there probably was some kind of, teenagers were always hanging around doing doing weird stuff. I don't know if it was that extreme, but there are witness accounts of people who directly witnessed Damien Eccles stamping a great Dane to death. And the guy who, the main statement of the actual person who witnessed it was Joe Bartish, who was Jason Baldwin's cousin. And he said he witnessed Damien stamping on this dog's head. There are other people who heard about it from kind of one degree of separation. So legally hearsay, if it wasn't for the direct eyewitness statement, we might be able to kind of be a bit more dismissive. But I think I think there's something in it in terms of Eccles' behaviour towards animals. There's also the fact that he kept uh, dog skulls and other animal skulls in his room. Now, people have said this, kind of come back to me on this, oh, you know, boys will be boys. And I get it. Teenage boys can be weird and gross. And I think that is at the extreme level of weird and gross. And I also think it's materially relevant to a horrible when a horrible crime gets committed. Um, but I was reading rereading Devil's Knot, and Mara Leverett talks about a report from when Jesse Miss Kelly was eight years old, and it describes him being cruel to animals when he became angry, when he became upset. So that's two of them. 
um, in terms of that. And also Jason Baldwin. Um, I can't remember where I read this. It's definitely in one of the documents. Jason Baldwin was fond of skinning snakes. Now, I believe it's possible. I think they were. It's not clear if they were kind of dead, if, if it was an act of cruelty. But there was certainly kind of suggestions that Baldwin was involved on his own and with Eccles as well in animal cruelty. Another way to try to figure out what a person is like is by taking a look at their romantic relationships. Eccles was officially dating a pregnant 16-year-old girl, uh, Dominique Tear, who, yeah, who had his baby during the trial, actually. And you can see some clips of him holding baby, baby Seth in Paradise Lost. But as well as Dominique, who was underage at the time, he was also, on the night of the uh, murders, he, has repeat, he repeatedly told police that he was talking to Jennifer Bearden. Jennifer Bearden was a local girl who lived in Bartlett, Tennessee, so just next to Memphis, over the water, and would talk to Damien Eccles every night, was 12 years old, and has said to police that, um, that they were an item, they had a teenagers-boy-girl relationship. Notice teenagers, she's 12, Eccles is 18. I would say this gets to the heart of why Jennifer Bearden and the other telephone girls from the night of the murders weren't offered as evidence. Because the last thing Eccles' defence attorney wanted was more evidence in front of this jury of Eccles' questionable behaviour towards towards children. And he also had an ex-girlfriend, uh, Deanna Holcomb, and he'd previously had a run-in with, um, with the police and also with a local probation officer, a guy called Jerry Driver. Um, but Eccles was dating again a girl who was too young for him. Her parents didn't want him seeing her anymore because, because he was a nightmare. He was, you know, he was, he was mentally unstable and was never going to really do anything with his life, was the expectation. So Eccles and, um, and Deanna Holcomb decide to try and run away together, break into a trailer, get caught. Eccles is arrested and re-hospitalised. And this is painted as a kind of gross overreaction to young love. Well, yes and no. If it was just that isolated incident, possibly, it's the fact that Eccles had his very concerning history of threats, actual acts of violence, and also that Deanna Holcomb told police repeatedly that Eccles said to her he wanted to sacrifice their firstborn child. When those things are being said, the state is going to take action to safeguard children. There are, of course, other reasons to suspect Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly of committing these crimes. For one thing, Miss Kelly actually confessed multiple times. So it's fantastic. It's, it's incredible how many times Miss um, Kelly confessed. And this is one of the other things that I would say is a massive misconception. People often believe that Miss Kelly confessed once after 12 hours of interrogation. And the other thing they often believe is that he had um, intellectual disabilities. Often they would use the R slur, which I'm not going to do. If, in, if it comes up in kind of a quote that I'm reading, I'm going to read intellectually disabled instead of that particular word. But in reality, Jesse Miss Kelly didn't confess on one occasion after 12 hours. There are six recorded or documented confessions, and those are there's the two on June the 3rd, 93, the first confession, then the clarification confession. Again, with in an interview with Dan Stidham, his attorney, on August 19th, 93. And then after his conviction, the officers transporting him to the jail um, say that he confessed to them the whole way there. That's February the, uh, February the 5th. February the 8th, he confesses to Dan Stidham again. This is the famous Bible confession where he puts his hand on a Bible and confesses to everything over again. And then February the 17th, the prosecutors finally managed to arrange a meeting with him because Dan Stidham 
has been trying to prevent them from speaking to Jesse after his conviction, because for whatever reason, he doesn't want him to testify at Eccles and Baldwin's trial, even though it would have meant him getting a deal and getting time off his sentence. So February 17th, prosecutors and Dan Stidham meet Jesse Miss Kelly and Stidham and the other attorney, uh, Crow, beg him at the start of the tape, please don't confess, we're advising you not to do this. And he goes ahead and does it anyway. So those are the kind of recorded ones. There's also alleged confessions the day after the murder to his friend, Buddy Lucas, who he gave a pair of um, tennis shoes that apparently had blood on them the day after the murder and was in tears. And that's something that's a repeated theme. Sorry, Miss Kelly's family tree is a bit complicated. It wasn't his stepmom, it was his, his father's girlfriend saw him having crying fits in the days after the murder. And his excuse was that his girlfriend was moving away and she thought it must be more serious than that. So again, this kind of crying from Miss Kelly is also what he does in interview. Um, we also know from his post-conviction proceedings that his first meeting with Dan Stidham, June the 11th, he confessed to him then and he continued to do so. It's not until I think around September that Stidham, in his kind of words, changed his mind. I might be a bit more cynical and say, came up with the false confession plan. But the other thing that people say about Miss Kelly is that he is intellectually disabled. Now, Jesse Miss Kelly is not a bright guy. Jesse, he's not going to be a sparkling conversationalist at any point. However, the kind of myth that's put out of that he was barely functioning, that he could barely communicate. Uh, there's a quote from Eccles in an interview I heard today. Where he said, you can tell the guy is intellectually disabled just by looking at him, which is outrageous, to be honest. But uh, again, Miss Kelly's um, IQ, according to the test administered by the defence, came out at 72. That's can be split into, into a performance score and a verbal score. The performance score, I've got it written down here. The expert testified that Miss Kelly's IQ was 72 and his performance IQ specifically was 75. And that is below kind of generally the borderline would be around 80. But on cross-examination, they asked the defence expert, William Wilkins, about an IQ test Miss Kelly took in the year before the arrest. And in that IQ test, Miss Kelly registered a performance IQ of 88. So between, so from before his arrest till when he's awaiting trial, his performance IQ drops 13 points. Either he's less smart now or he's got the idea that, or he had a bad day, or he's got the idea that he should do badly on this test. So when we watch Paradise Lost, there's a bit where Stidham is speaking to Miss Kelly and Dan Stidham says to him, do you understand that we're giving you this test because if you're deemed not to be competent, the state might not be able to give you the death penalty. And Miss Kelly says, yes, he understands. And then off he goes to take this test and shock, Miss Kelly works out that if he does badly, he can't get the death penalty. And then what do you know? During the same cross-examination, the defence expert is confronted about the what is it the t-score in the f value and what that means specifically is that if that's a very high score on the test that he was giving to miss kelly indicates that he's um he's lying basically he's, he's deliberately trying to underperform underperform and initially the defense expert said it was very mild and then prosecutor pointed out that it was actually not it was very high i checked the mmpi scoring today just to see this and anything above 65 is considered clinically significant and Miss Kelly's score on that was 83. So very high suggestion that he was deliberately trying to fail. And Miss Kelly is, even just based on that, Miss Kelly, Miss Kelly is not as, as daft as people say. 
One criticism you may have heard about the Jesse Miskelly confessions is that one of them happened only after Miskelly had been interrogated for 12 hours. The implication, I suppose, is that the length of the police interview somehow wore Miskelly down and prompted him to give a false confession. But did that interrogation really last 12 hours? It's just not true. Jesse Miskelly arrived at the police station that morning with his father's signed consent slip. He got there at, um, he was initially questioned beginning at 10 a.m. So that's when he arrived at the station and that's when the police right the interview started. So we'll assume there's got to be a gap of a few minutes, but we'll be generous, we'll say it starts at 10 a.m. 11 a.m. detectives decide to ask him to take a polygraph, as they did to almost everyone, it seems like. Again, they then get additional consent from uh, Jesse Senior. That was obtained at 11.15. Jesse's read his Miranda rights, the ones that Rollins and others say he wasn't read. He's read them again at um, 11.30. So 10 to 11, he's being questioned. A break between around 11 and 11.30. Takes his polygraph then, the last 40, uh, about 45 minutes. And then there's a post-polygraph interview. So in terms of, it's a maximum of an hour of questioning as a witness, 41 minutes taking the polygraph, 15 minutes giving the post-test interview. Can round that up to around about two hours questioning and testing. And then at 12.40, Jesse began being interrogated as a suspect because the polygraph examiner determined that he was, quote, lying his ass off. Um, So Jesse was interrogated as a suspect from 12.40 till 2.20. So that's one hour and 40 minutes of actual interrogation. In police contact for four hours and 20 minutes, including transport, in any kind of interview for three hours and 40 minutes, and one hour and 40 minutes of interrogation before he confessed, not 12 hours. That that one has to be a deliberate lie because it doesn't even work if you say, well, he got there at 10 a.m. and left at 10 p.m., so that's 12 hours, therefore. No, it's wrong. It doesn't fit the time log. And... This is something that's repeated over and over again. And yeah, it's just wrong. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. 
We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Now that we've discussed the circumstances under which Miss Kelly confessed, and the number of times he confessed, let's find out what the substance of the confession was. What did Miss Kelly say happened? Jesse's story was that he, Damien and Jason were waiting in the woods because they wanted to, they were waiting in the woods, three little boys came in, Miss Kelly and Baldwin hid in a bush while Eccles called the boys over um, by making noises and kind of sort of called them over. Then they attacked the boys. Um, Miss Kelly gets a lot wrong in his first statement. And this is something that people love to, to highlight. Oh, Miss Kelly got everything wrong. He, he did get the time wrong, that's true. At first he said that it was at noon. There's a couple of potential reasons for that. One is, Miss Kelly, I don't believe he's intellectually disabled. I think he's got a borderline low IQ, but he certainly did, he certainly wasn't the brightest. He had massive substance abuse problems. He liked to huff gas and drink a lot of alcohol, and he didn't wear a watch. So I think that's part, part of the reason why he wouldn't get the time right. There's also another explanation when he was explaining to his attorney that he was falsely confessing, one of the things he said was that he deliberately told the police the wrong time so that he could kind of fix, fit an alibi into it. Now, is Miss Kelly that smart? I'm not sure. I do think there are elements of deliberate falsehoods in his testimony. But yeah, the, they attacked the three, um, the three boys. And something that the police didn't know, which Miss Kelly tells them, is that Michael Moore ran away and he ran after him, grabbed him and brought him back. And Michael Moore's body is found away from the other two bodies in a ditch. Now, obviously, Miss Kelly says he brought him back, but he doesn't say he brought him all the way back. And Miss Kelly also at times tells investigators that he was trying to protect Michael Moore. So after beating him, he says that Baldwin or Eccles wanted to mutilate Michael and he wouldn't let them. And actually, that's borne out by the wounds on, on Michael's body. That, that's the story that Miss Kelly tell, tells. But should we take the content of Miss Kelly's confession seriously? After all, he did make some mistakes. He got the time of the murders wrong. He said the children were tied with ropes when they were actually bound with shoelaces. Can we believe the thrust of the confessions when he mistook some of those details? I think there are significant enough parts that he gets right that we have to look at the whole thing as being credible. If Miss Kelly confessed once and made all these mistakes and said, for example, the boys were tied with ropes rather than with laces and said that it was at noon, although he does correct that time with help from the detective, but he does correct it. If it was once with those mistakes, I'd be sceptical. I might say, yes, this is a false confession. As it is, he confesses over and over and over again. He can't stop confessing. And by the way, if you go into most West Memphis three groups on Facebook, every so often someone who says they were locked up with Jesse Miss Kelly, says that he confessed to them. Now, I'm sure some of those people aren't telling the truth, but I'm sure some of them are as well. Miss Kelly confessed over and over again. The story that he told is a horrifying story, and he talks about mutilation of the bodies, and he talks about burying them in the water, and it's sad, and it's awful. And he talks about, as well, sexual assault or attempted sexual assault of the boys. And linked to that, and this is a very... Very gross, but very important piece, I think, supporting evidence for one of Miss Kelly's confessions. He describes Eccles um, masturbating and ejaculating 
either onto one of the boys' jeans or onto the ground and then wiping it up. And on one of the pairs of jeans, I believe it's Michael Moore's, uh, there's a stain which an, which an analyst at trial uh, said was appeared to be sperm, it appeared to be semen. He said they did manage to extract some DNA from it. It was most likely semen DNA. And that, I would say, is very compelling evidence supporting Miss Kelly's confession. And I'd also say, if you want to start testing evidence, I'd be very happy if they wanted to test that stain on those genes. See if they can extract the full DNA profile and see if it comes back to Damien Eccles. Do you, do you think they ever will? No. Of course, even though Eccles doesn't seem to want the genes tested, he does claim to very much want the shoelaces tested. That is why he has gone to court. Does this tell us anything? People say, oh, if Damien Eccles was guilty, then he wouldn't want the DNA to be tested um, because it's going to prove that he's guilty. Well, there's a few problems. Firstly, the Innocence Project did a survey of their, did a study, sorry, on clients of theirs who obtained further DNA testing. 42% of them turned out to be guilty. So 42% of people um, asking for the DNA testing were, were in fact guilty. Obviously, most of them were still in prison. Um, not all, I don't think, but most. Eccles is out. Why is he asking? Well, a couple of things. 2008, the Arkansas State Crime Lab uh, wrote a letter basically slamming the defense's DNA, DNA analysis, saying it was, it was very inconclusive, but also saying that in their view, there will be no usable DNA profiles on any of the evidence that had been submerged underwater for over 18 hours because of the fact that it was submerged in filthy water. So the chances of pulling usable profiles that are of the killer or killers from any of that evidence, I think, is minimal. It's far more likely to be from contamination, which, of course, is perfect for the convicted three because they can say, oh, see, it's not, it's someone else. Someone else did it, you know. But So that's part of it. I don't think there's very much likelihood at all of it coming back to any of them. But the other point, between 2004 and 2011, Bode laboratories who are being used, laboratories who are being used by um, the defence, have been told by the court to file their DNA status reports with the court as well as with the defence. And they filed one update, I think, when they received the evidence, and barely filed anything else. There are a lot of results, DNA results, in this case between 2004 and 2011, that have only been seen by Bode and by the defence. They just didn't file them. So. The 2011 results that were received a few days before they decide, actually, we want to plead guilty after all. Those results have never been released in full to anyone. And I'd be interested to see what's there. I think personally, I think it's probably a big old nothing burger. I don't think they found anything concrete on any of them. But the fact is that if they had found anything good, anything good for them, they'd have gone to the evidentiary hearing. So let's say, let's say the judge had granted Eccles motion for further DNA testing. They do the DNA testing and it comes back to Eccles or it comes back to something that can't exclude Eccles, can't exclude Baldwin, can't exclude Miss Kelly in the same way as the hair couldn't exclude Terry Hobbs or millions of other people. They just won't release the results. They didn't do it then. And I don't see any reason why people would trust them now. Eccles has really very little to lose. He can't go back to prison. His probation's over. And a lot of his fans, and they are fans in a lot of cases, rather than supporters, will just say, oh, it's planted. 
if it even got to that point, because I just don't think they'd release it. But let's get back to the night of the crime itself. I was wondering if you could tell us about what alibis the three uh, offered as to where they were at the time of the crime. Uh, the alibis are fascinating. So Miss Kelly's kind of attempted alibi was that he was wrestling. That he was wrestling in Dias, in Dias, Arkansas, about 50 miles away from West Memphis. And this is, again, a common, a widely believed misconception. Some people just take it as an accepted fact. Oh, Miss Kelly was wrestling. Jesse was wrestling. Jesse couldn't have been there. Well, Miss Kelly presented that alibi at trial with several witnesses who claimed to have been there that night wrestling with him. And Miss Kelly's alibi fell apart. There's several reasons for that. One of them is a witness called Dennis Carter. He said on the stand that he was wrestling in Dias with Jesse that night. The prosecutor then confronted him with his police statement, which was from, I think about, I think it was in the same month that Miss Kelly was arrested, actually. And he said, quote, I have never been to Dias with Jesse. That was what he said a month afterwards. And then he got up on the stand and said that he did, that he was at wrestling. And then Fogelman, the prosecutor, pointed out, what's that yellow ribbon on your chest? And this is something that a lot of people kind of, I don't think, are aware of. A lot of Miss Kelly's witnesses, a lot of the people who were there supporting him, wore these yellow ribbons on their chest. And what they meant was, well, in the words of um, Carter, that we love little Jesse and we want him to come home. Which is very sweet. And I'm sure there were people who truly believed that Miss Kelly was innocent and wanted to support him. But it does not look good on the stand when you've just been caught out saying, yes, I was wrestling, when you said that you weren't. And then to be asked, why are you wearing that ribbon? And to say, because I love Jesse. It looks like what juries often believe alibi, of alibi witnesses that, well, they're just lying for you. The person who you're most likely to have been with for an alibi is often the person who's got the most reason to lie for you. And another way in which this fell apart. So there was a guy called Fred Ravel, who was one of the, uh, the wrestlers. And he went to the police a few days after Miss Kelly was arrested and said that he could prove that Miss Kelly was um, wrestling. And he told police that the guy they paid to hire the wrestling ring would have a receipt. And he said explicitly that was the only evidence they had that they went wrestling on May the 5th. The police went and got a copy of the receipt. And the receipt for the ring hire is for April 27th, the Wednesday before the murders. That's when Jesse was wrestling. That's when Jesse was wrestling. It fell apart on the stand. And just even if it wasn't for that, Miss Kelly never mentions going wrestling in any of his confessions. He says that he was in the woods. And I think he says that over and over again because that's where he was. Um, Eccles' alibi, he wasn't content with one. He went for three. So the first attempted alibi was that he was at, they were at the friend, some friends of the family, the Sanders. And they went there, um, I think, watched something on the TV and they hung out there for a bit. And initially, Eccles says this is around 4 p.m. So in no way an alibi for the murders, which took place disputed time, but in the later evening, kind of dusk sort of time. By trial and through um, his mother's statements and through his own statements and through the Sanders statements, the time moves kind of later and later until the visit to the Sanders, which was a half hour visit, becomes now the absolutely crucial thing that, um, that proves that Eccles couldn't have been involved. But when, again, the prosecutor points out during Eccles' cross-examination, you're just moving around the times here, aren't you? You're moving around the times of this visit so you can cover the time that you need to be accounted for, so that you've got an alibi. 
And Eccles says, yes, sir. Eccles says, yes. And they actually, they, they show um, an exchange between him and his attorney about this in Paradise Lost. And the attorney's like, what are you doing? He says, oh, I was daydreaming, which is crazy. Probably, genuinely, just there were some astonishing moments of how poorly prepared Eccles was for, for testifying. So Eccles admits on the stand that he moved around the times of that alibi. The second attempted um, alibi was his sister claimed to be watching Beverly Hills 90210 with him um, while he was speaking on the phone. And I think I think she may well believe that, that Damien was there during that time. She may well have just been trying to protect her brother, but she may well believe he was there. One reason why Danny doubts that Eccles was not actually there with his sister is because of stories told by the so-called telephone girls, Heather Clyatt, Holly George, and Jennifer Bearden. They told authorities that they spoke with Eccles on the phone on the night of the murders. But their stories don't place Eccles with his sister in the 7 o'clock hour. But the idea that he was there from around 7 o'clock onwards until, yeah, in that kind of 7 o'clock hour, Eccles wasn't there on the phone because none of the telephone girls who, were speaking to, who he was speaking to said that he was available at that time. If you look at all of their statements, there's some kind of, there's some confusion about who exactly said what, and there's quite a bit of them telling the police, oh, Holly told me that Damien was out walking. So it's kind of hearsay rather than a direct recounting. But when you piece together the accounts of um, Holly George, Heather Clyer, um, who was Jason's uh, girlfriend, uh, Jennifer Bearden, the, uh, the 12-year-old girl, when you piece them together, there's a gap between around 7 and 9.20 when no one was on the phone to Eccles. And the reason that they all give, directly or indirectly, is that he'd been out walking with Jason Baldwin. The earliest anyone ever suggests that he was at home again on the phone is Jennifer Bearden, who says that she got through to him at about 9.20. Now, the Hollingsworth family said they saw Eccles and someone who they believe to be Dominique on the service road at 9.30. If Eccles is on the phone at 9.20, it's not him on the service road, covered in mud near the crime scene. But in later statements, Jennifer Bearden says that actually... She said 9.20, 9.30 is when she thought she got through to Eccles because she didn't want her mum to think that she'd been awake any later than that. So actually, it could have been later. Others who were on the phone to him, Heather Clyatt, for example, says she wasn't able to get through to Eccles until 10.30pm. So there's a huge chunk of time during the evening in which Eccles is unaccounted for. He's definitely not home by nine because his grandmother tells Jennifer Bearden that he's not home and that he seems to have told several people that he was out walking with Jason Baldwin. They put themselves together on the, on the evening of those murders. And let's say, by the way, that Miss Kelly's confession was false. The bad luck that Eccles and Baldwin would have to have had to have been the only two people who he ever accuses, the only two people who he ever falsely confesses to being involved with. And not only that, neither of them have got alibis. People are unlucky. I just don't believe that this is one of those times. But let's raise a point we've heard time and time again from defenders of Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskelly. These were three teenagers, not sophisticated master criminals. How could they have known how to commit a triple homicide and not leave behind any direct evidence that implicated them? 
there's very little physical evidence at the crime scene. Um, and people say, how did these three drunk teenagers not leave any, not leave any evidence? Well, I would dispute that partially. There's fiber evidence that links uh, Baldwin and Miss Kelly. It's certainly not conclusive. Um, fiber evidence is fairly weak, but it's not a complete lack of physical evidence. So yeah, there's this idea of the CSI effect, which is the phenomenon that jurors in particular expect scientific evidence to be offered on a more regular basis than it is. Now, I was looking for a more recent um, data than this, and I couldn't find any. So this is from 2006 and 2010. So things would probably have changed somewhat. I think what it, the picture it paints is still broadly correct. So 2006 survey of more than 1,000 jurors in Michigan found that nearly half of the jurors expected to see some sort of scientific evidence in every criminal trial, and nearly 75% expected to see scientific evidence presented in murder trials. But nothing like that many murder trials have scientific evidence presented. Just nowhere near. Um, and so that's, as I said, these things might have changed. That's from 2006. I think actually more people would expect scientific evidence now than did then. This 2010 study, which reviewed 400 murder cases in five different jurisdictions and found that the presence of forensic evidence made very little difference as to how long it took people to be charged, how long it took them to be convicted, um, and how the, how the, um, the case would be handled. But the crucial point for me is that 13, only 13.5 of these cases, 13.5% had physical evidence linking the suspect to the crime scene or to a victim. 13.5%. And in most of those cases, the evidence wasn't dumped underwater for 18 hours. So it's, I think you've got a really minimal chance, really, of physical evidence being recovered from this scene. And in fact, in the same study, DNA was recovered in just 4.5% of homicides. So again, people have this idea that DNA and physical evidence are recovered a lot more than they actually are. There's a quote from Pam Hobbs in 2000, Pam Hicks, sorry, 2008. I was re-watching West of Memphis or Paradise Lost 3, one of the two, and she says... I feel peace in my heart. None of their DNA was on my son's body, so I know that they never touched my son. And that broke my heart hearing Pam say that. Because for years, Pam believed she knew who did it. And she was lied to. She was lied to and told, well, they can't have done it if there's no DNA on the bodies. No. 4.5% of all, of all murder cases, they find DNA from the suspects. 4.5%. And this is, in this case, this is a case where evidence was massively damaged by the way in which it was dumped underwater, then handled using 1993 um, evidence handling techniques. The fact that their DNA wasn't present at the scene doesn't exonerate them. And this is another point the state has raised recently. This was never a DNA conviction. So if Eccles pulls out more results that say, see, my DNA is not there, neither is anyone else's, but my DNA is not there, it can't be me, it doesn't exonerate him. It does not... It doesn't exonerate any of them. And another thing that the supporters will often kind of dismiss or more often than not don't really know about, the 2007 DNA testing that was done, some of these sample, these are very kind of limited partial profiles that would be consistent to a fairly large percentage of the population. And included in that large percentage of the population who can't be excluded are, on some of the swabs, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly. Now, I don't think that is strong evidence against them. 
because I think it would be consistent with a fair amount of people in the same way as the Hobbs hair is consistent with one and a half percent of the population. But to say none of their DNA is present is, I think, stretching a point. But yeah, it's not a DNA case. It's a case built on them being seen near the crime scene. Um, Eccles is very concerning answers in interviews, perjuring himself on the stand, various confessions. Obviously, Miss Kelly's confession wasn't admitted, but Eccles confessed to the softball girls and others. Um, Michael Carson alleged that Jason Baldwin confessed to him. But yeah, never a DNA case. And that's part of the reason that um, had they gone to their evidentiary hearings in 2011 with evidence of, well, with their evidence around the uh, bodies and their animal predation theory, which is still just a theory, um, you know, it's never been conclusively demonstrated. If they'd gone to the evidentiary hearing with all of their new evidence, they might have actually had a better chance on some of those points than DNA because it wasn't a DNA-based conviction. But the key point is, yeah, DNA will not exonerate Damien Eccles and it will never convict Terry Hobbs. Terry Hobbs, as a reminder, was the stepfather of murder victim Steve Branch. Over the years, some defenders of Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly have tried to suggest that Hobbs was somehow involved in the murder of the three boys. And... Uh, the reason I mentioned Terry specifically is because he has gone through since 2007 what John Mark Byers went through from 1993 to 2007. The defense said that they believe John Mark Byers was guilty essentially because he's a strange guy. 2007, they suddenly switched focus to Terry Hobbs. His DNA on those laces, on all three of them that Eccles have, um, applied to test. If it was on all three, then yes, Hobbs would be looked at, I'm sure, by police. But the fact is, there's a perfectly reasonable, believable explanation why his DNA would be on any of those ligatures. Because one of the boys was his stepson. The other two were his, his stepson's friends. They were in and out of each other's houses all the time. It's not just reasonable doubt. That is massive doubt. There is DNA... What, won't be able to convict Hobbs in this case and which is good because Terry Hobbs is absolutely innocent of anything involved any involvement in it he's been slandered and the only way that DNA could convict someone in this case I think would be if it was someone who was completely unrelated to the three victims a, a stranger a serial killer if a serial killer's profile comes back on any evidence that's tested then I hold my hands up I will personally apologise to all three of the, the West Memphis Three. I'll have to find Jesse first, but I will apologise to them. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. 
Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. In a case like this, for many, the actual facts are not as important as how they are presented in the media both in the press and in fictional programs. The program Stranger Things has recently based the character Eddie Munson on Damien Eccles. In an interview on the Netflix site To Doom, Ross Duffer, one of the creators of the program, explained his thinking. Something we really wanted to get into this year was the satanic panic. So that brought us back to the Paradise Lost documentary series with the West Memphis Three and it brought us back to Damien Eccles. We really wanted that character who's a metalhead. He's into Dungeons and Dragons. He's ultimately a true nerd at heart. But from an outsider's point of view, they may go, this is someone that is scary. So that's really where the idea for Eddie came in. Eccles, for his part, seems delighted by the character. He recently tweeted that he was tremendously honored by it, and that he felt the character brought a massive new wave of awareness to our plight. We asked Danny what she thought of Stranger Things, including a character inspired by Eccles. So it's ridiculous. I haven't seen it yet, but what I'm told about the character is, and what I've read, is that it doesn't actually resemble Eccles at all. I think bluntly, it's a very cheap, very obvious attempt to cash in on the fact that Eccles is back in the media again with his no-hoper kind of motion. Yeah, it's making more money off the deaths of Stevie, Michael and Christopher and... You know, one thing that we've seen in true crime and and as true crime podcasters ourselves that we've tried to avoid is like you have like a narrative arises and then it's almost like a social contagion. Like everyone just starts, you know, saying the same thing. And like and I've seen that with the West Memphis three. It's like a couple of prominent podcasters start saying, look at these men, they're innocent. You know, how could this happen? And then that's just what takes over. And what would your advice be for people who are listeners on how to like maybe avoid just jumping on that kind of bandwagon and like looking critically as you have at this case? Um, so with this case, um, I would say this is probably the easiest case to look at everything because it has been litigated repeatedly. And because there was such a following of it, people went to the effort of getting the documents. They're all available at um, callahan.mysite.com. So to be honest, that's a really good place to start. Read the trial transcripts. Um, at least read the kind of key, the key parts of the trial transcripts. Read Eccles' cross-examination, for example. Some began to take up the cause of Eccles, Baldwin, and Muskelly because the media did not offer all of the facts and often simply presented the trio as people like Eddie Munson, an outsider, in other words, that a lot of average people could relate to. There was very much a social movement around it. Young people who identify with Eccles or who are expected to identify with Eccles began identifying with the, the Free the West Memphis Three cause, often without really looking into it. Um, then people like Henry Rollins, um, 
Eddie Vedder, Johnny Depp, the less said about him, the better. These kind of people also getting involved without looking at the facts, often repeating falsehoods. Uh, Henry Rollins is repeated on, on, ster- on kind of repeat over and over for 10 years. Miss Kelly was not Mirandized. Yes, he was. He listened to the tape. He says it at the start. Is it possible for people to have a civil discussion about their different opinions of this case? No one is. No one can be civil. And it's partly because the nature of the crime is so horrible, so awful, that people who believe, for example, the, the families of the boys, um, Todd and Dana Moore, uh, Terry Hobbs, Steve Branch Sr., who all still believe the convicted three are guilty, quite rightly and understandably find it offensive when people are sticking up for three men who they believe are guilty. And others who've seen the crime and also been horrified feel similarly. And on the other side, people who have been convinced for a very long time, often since they first saw Paradise Lost, that not only are these three men uh, innocent, but that they are so absolutely, obviously innocent, no one with half a brain cell could possibly think that they were they were guilty. And that's just not true. And people have got, people are very set in some of their conclusions about this case on both sides. I can acknowledge that I'm setting my conclusions about this case. This case is unusual in that so many of the raw materials, the court records and such, are right out there on the web for everyone to read and analyze. We would like to join Danny in encouraging people who are interested in this case to look beyond quick comments made by celebrities who have seen a couple of biased documentaries. Go out and do your own research. And once you've seen both sides of the story, make up your own mind. This case is one where you can research it yourself to a huge extent, like absolutely massive extent. You can read the trial transcripts, you can read the witness statements, you can read everything. If someone tells you something happened, you can go and check. It's great. So, for example, Dan Stidham says, um, and he said this in court, in fact, that he and one of his experts managed to get Jesse Miss Kelly to falsely confess to a robbery that never happened. And he says he says this, you know, in fact, when you watch the tape, Miss Kelly says, no, I didn't. I never did that. He gets very angry. He refuses to talk to them and eventually gets up and storms out of the room. He doesn't give the coerced confession. And you can find that out because it's on Callahan. You can go and check. And in many cases, in many cases, you don't have that. And you take the other person, you take an organization's word for it. So that was part of the reason I found it fascinating. And um, you could check everything. Then Bob Ruff did his kind of season five podcast. And I started listening to it. I was dating someone who was very, who was also very interested in the case and got very interested in Bob Ruff's season. And we listened to it together and I kind of, at times I was moving from undecided towards more leaning innocent because say what you like about Bob Ruff, um, and I do, but he can do a very effective presentation of, of the innocence narrative. And there were a few things that he said that made me question it. For example, he said that the sighting of Eccles on the service road covered in mud near the crime scene, he said he didn't believe it happened, but even if it was real, was more of an alibi which is just nonsensical. And there were things like that that were making me massively question his whole agenda. And since then, I've just, I realised that some of the people, the people who knew most about this case by far, 
were invariably people who believe that the convicted three are guilty. And the more I read, the more I realized that they are, they're guilty. Um, there's a, that's why they pled guilty. That's why they've not, not been exonerated. And people believe they're innocent based on misconceptions. And honestly, correcting misconceptions when it's so easy to kind of to do is something that I find, I think it's worthwhile. I can't pretend that I don't get a kick out of it sometimes because, you know, we're all, we're, I'm only human. Um, and I enjoy the, I enjoy writing stuff, you know. And bluntly as well, I've got, a, I've got ADHD. If I can hyper-focus on something and learn everything about it and, you know, spit it back out, then that's what I'm going to do. Um, yeah, this case, there's so, so much depth to it. And almost everything that almost everyone thinks they know about this case is wrong. And I hope that people start looking into it more and realise realize the truth behind the, the kind of the Hollywood innocence campaign. Read Callahan, read Blood on Black, have an open mind um, to seeing that maybe everything that you've been told might not all be true. We would like to thank Danny for taking the time to speak with us. We are including in our notes a link to the Facebook group on this case that she helps to administrate, as well as to her podcast, 10601 Savo, which covers a different case. We're also including a link to Callahan, the research site she mentioned, which includes a wealth of primary material about this tragic case. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>